So, chapter 13 is where we're going to be, off, be tonight, and chapter 13 is building off of that great redemptive drama that we were learning of in chapter 12. There is, from the perspective of God, the playing out of his eternal decrees in which he saves a definite and particular people from their sins, and he makes them a kingdom of priests who enjoy, will worship God, strive against sin, and endure through this life being preserved by God himself. All throughout this time period of the two witnesses of chapter 11, who, who was the church proclaiming the faith to the world, and this present evil age, this period of time in between Christ Jesus' first and second coming, all according to God's eternal decree. And so in Revelation 12, we're given a glimpse of this redemptive drama, and we see it in light of these apocalyptic characters. There is a dragon who is descriptive of Satan. And we see um, that there's also a woman who was figurative of the people of God with his gospel, who would eventually bring forth a promised child, a promised son, the Savior, the Messiah. And throughout all of history, before the incarnation, the dragon was always seeking to devour the son of the woman and to prevent the coming of the Christ. But again, that was a futile attempt. Because this was all God's decree, and Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And so it was sure to happen. And then with the birth of the Son, there is this war in heaven, you remember, and the dragon is cast down to the earth. And he takes with him a third of the stars, which we read how it correlates to uh, the visions that Daniel had. And now the dragon, who is Satan, he is unable to attack the Son. The sun is victorious. He has bruised the head of the serpent, as foretold in Genesis 3 in the Proto-Evangelium. And now the dragon is turning his attention to attacking the spiritual seed of the woman, the church, in other words, that is existing in this time period that we are presently in. And this time period also encased those those seven original church recipients as well from chapter 2 and chapter 3 in this book. And so what John is doing for us is he's communicating to us a message that is meant to encourage the church in this age from God. He's he's helping us here. He's giving us the information that we need to endure the trials that are before us. And I, I speak of that in a general sense, because not everyone in the church is going to experience the exact same trials. There are Christians in other nations and countries that are going through different trials than we are. But this book is given to us all so that we all might be encouraged through whatever trials and tribulations we are going through. You guys may have heard the military maxim before, know thy enemy. Uh, The reason that that is said is because in order to succeed in battle, knowing your enemy, like what move they will make, what kinds of efforts they will engage in, it will give you an advantage. And that's why spying is such an important part of warfare, because it always, it'll make the difference in battle. Or if you consider like elite athletes, what usually sets apart the greats from everyone else? What causes certain athletes to perform at levels that are greater than athletes of similar skill and fitness? It's usually, it's their ability to watch tape, their ability to study their opponents, to know how their opponents are going to act in a, in a given situation or react in a given situation. And we can kind of think of chapter 13 like that. Because now, in chapter 13, or are we saying, Steve, did you just watch the, 
the last mm-hmm. dance because I saw I was watching Rodman watch tape. And, no, I was mocking. Oh, the cheater. Okay, so but in chapter thirteen, uh, what's happening here is we're giving more details about how the dragon, the devil that it, that it is, is waging war against the saints. Remember back from the latter trumpet judgments that there is presently a spiritual warfare, a spiritual war going on around us all the time. That such activity is part of God's will being accomplished in this age. And we're not to be ignorant of it. That God and his sovereignty is even using it to build and persevere his kingdom of people. And we'll see that again in chapter 13. In chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to two what are called beasts in Revelation. And in a way, if you take the two beasts and the dragon, what you have is a mockery of our triune God. It's an unholy trinity that is being put before us. And we're going to have time um, tonight to only consider the first beast and only part of the first beast. I intended to go through all ten verses that deal with the first beast, but we're only going to do half of it tonight. So the plan is to take chapter 13 over two weeks. Hopefully we'll still do it in two weeks. Maybe it'll be three. We'll figure that out next week. But first, let's remember how chapter 12 ends because that's setting up this chapter. So chapter 12, verse 17 <coughs> says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So that's setting the stage, as it were, for chapter 13. And so as we read these first 10 verses of chapter 13, we'll still read all 10 verses tonight. Remember that it's in the context of the wounded and furious Satan who is now bent on persecuting the church, on causing turmoil in the life of those who keep who seek to keep the commandments of God and and who rest in the promises available to us in the gospel, who hold to the testimony of Jesus, in other words. So let's read the text and we'll pray. So the reading of God's word beginning at verse 1 in in Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and a blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who was like the beast, and who could fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened up its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth worship it. Everyone whose name has, who has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's the end. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we approach this text, we again recognize the uniqueness of it, very similar to 
how chapter 12 was. And so we pray for understanding that you would help us to see the point that is revealed here in these passages and that from it you would encourage us and cause us to be all the more enamored and in awe of you as your sovereign will is done. And we pray that your will be done among us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So if you remember from last time in chapter 12, I had mentioned that chapter 12 actually parallels chapter 20 in some ways. Chapter 20 is that very famous chapter that usually that's the one that everybody focuses on and debates over when it comes to what is the meaning of the millennium. And we'll get there eventually. But chapter 12 and 20 have a lot of similarities. It's another example of recapitulation, which is looking at the same event from different angles, right? And so what we might notice right away then is the seriousness of this battle that the church finds itself in. The evil army's numerical strength is like the sand of the seashore. We read that in Revelation 28. And we see in 1217 that the dragon begins his stand against the church on the sea's sand. We are symbolically being told of a present danger that is before the church here. There are many ways in which Satan seeks to harm the church. Many of them they seem oblivious to. Most people seem oblivious to these ways. And they're always in front of our face. And there's always a danger of us just becoming accustomed to wickedness. And this is especially true as the culture becomes more and more swayed by evil, which is, which is what we have happening in our society today. In the last few weeks even, you have a giant golden statue placed on top of a building in New York to pay homage to abortion. And people are blind to, to this reality, and they're blind to the reality that what it is, is is simply child sacrifice. It is men and women who are sacrificing their children so that they can pursue other things, travel, security, employment, whatever it may be. It's worship of self or some other idol, and the giant gold idol <coughs> on a building in New York perfectly captures the reality of the spiritual battle that we actually are finding ourselves in, that we are engulfed in, but many turn a blind eye towards it. <coughs> or the Grammys were just on the other day. Maybe it was last night. Sunday. Two nights ago. I'm not sure. Yeah, Sunday? Okay. I don't watch them personally, but on social media, there's a lot of people that are talking about a guy named Sam Smith who's had this demonic performance on it, and he just released a, a video a week prior that is so evil and so shocking. Um, the amount of evil that this video is, it's, it's not surprising <coughs> because we know to expect <coughs> excuse me, the celebration of wickedness in this spiritual battle. But this video of Sam's is still shocking. <coughs> so there's like this performance on the Grammys where it's clearly satanic. And that's nothing new even. Uh, those types of things have been happening for years. It's nothing new in Hollywood and in certain political sectors. <coughs> where it seems clearly obvious that satanic worship, which always carries along with it, sexual debauchery, is, is what the world celebrates. And we shouldn't think that this is just meaningless. That these are just meaningless events, friends. <coughs> these are the type of thing, excuse me, things that John is warning the church about. I'm, I'm dying up here. <coughs> these are the, the things which seek to draw us astray, to lead us astray, the types of things that Satan uses. These are some of the weapons that are formed against us, which we know won't prevail against those who are truly in the church. But we need to see them for what they are. The imagery here 
also reminds us of a later description of the beast in chapter 17. There, the beast is associated with an individual who is called the harlot or the great prostitute. And the harlot, we read, has a seat on the sea's waters. And this shows her sway, her influence over the people. And the beast's sway over the peoples and the multitude of the nations and the tongues, 17, 1 and 15. So this is all telling us something about the international authority that the dragon bestows on the beast who bears his image in 13.2 and 13.7. The beast has a certain authority. And in that authority, he wants to cause turmoil and to bring chaos and to bring about worship of anything other than that of the true God through his Christ. But this is all being communicated to us through the apocalyptic imagery that is being supplied in these chapters. Verse 1 describes the head of the first beast. Verse 2 describes its body. Verse 3 through 4 describes the world's response to the beast. And then 5 through 10 speak about the actions of the beast. But before we consider those, a word of caution. Remember, we're only considering half of the chapter tonight, and really not even the whole half. I was intending to do half. But the whole chapter is speaking of the dragon's rage in this world and the attacks that he brings against the church. And so in Revelation 13, 18, which is the end of the description of the second beast, John tells us that understanding these things correctly calls for wisdom. To understand all of these things correctly, it it, it calls for wisdom. This is in part a reference to the fact that many in John's original audience were Jewish, who were thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament. And so we should understand then that upon hearing John's apocalyptic imagery and vision read aloud in these churches, the minds of those Jewish Christians would probably automatically start thinking of, of the Old Testament texts, which provide the context for John's vision and the key to rightly understanding these you know, highly symbolic images. We're met with a similar issue in understanding the text as well, because virtually every line in the vision refers either directly or indirectly to one or more Old Testament passages. People who knew the Old Testament knew exactly what John was talking about when he spoke about these beasts, these monsters. But John's call for wisdom also entails something else. Not only is the Old Testament the main part of the context, (coughs) and certainly... um, the key to understanding the symbols that John is using. But John also writes against the backdrop of a very large and very pagan, God-hating world empire, Rome. An empire which also was predicted by one of Israel's prophets, Daniel. And so it seems to me that John is asking his reader to not only think about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament passages to which John refers, but he's also asking his audience then to make the connection between Christ's fulfillment of these things here and now and how they're currently being played out before their very eyes in the Roman Empire. And it's seen for the example in the struggles of the seven churches to whom John was originally writing, which I also think is the primary context and example of the beast, which we'll get to in just a moment. But in other words, once Christ has come and fulfilled the expectations of Israel's prophets, The long-anticipated messianic age is finally here. It's on the scene. It's arrived. And with the coming of the Messiah, the struggle between Satan and the people of God takes on new dimensions as we enter the final stories of God's story of redemption. 
The context that we must keep in mind then is God's victory over Satan when Christ dies upon the cross for our sins and is raised for our justification. That should never be out of our minds when we think about these things because that reality is our hope as we have to be confronted with the types of things that are going to come against the church. So the question remains, how does Christ's victory over Satan all those years ago relate to the ongoing struggle with the godless nations that persecute the church today and all throughout history. And John's answer has actually been stated repeatedly. It's because of Christ's victory on Calvary and in the garden tomb, the final outcome is certain, even though the consummation of all these things is yet to come. But Jesus' victory is certain. He's already he's ascended to the right hand of God. He's in heaven. That's why he was able to open the scroll even. John has repeatedly spoken of the church as victorious in heaven, triumphant, singing and joyful and clothed in white and enduring. But also, when he thinks of the church on the world, in the world, it's a struggling church who is persecuted, who is battling against indwelling sin. And, and uh, upon the church, upon the earth, I should say, the church is militant, we would say, in, in battle, in war with the enemies of darkness uh, who hate the Lord. And this is why John's encouragement is so simple and important for us to understand. He warns us that even though we must face this beast, even though, you know, if you're a Christian here tonight, the point is that you are facing this beast, we do so with a certain final confidence in our mind that Christ has already won the victory for us. The atonement of Christ didn't fail. That's why we read of him as the as the slain lamb living in Revelation 5, where he's worthy to open the scroll and tell of the events that happen in this age. That's our, our hope in light of these things. Now, who would those Christians, or who would the Christians in those seven churches think is the beast? Remember those seven churches from chapter 2 and 3? Remember their context. They're dealing with imperial Rome at the near height of her power with her emperor cult and her economic military domination of the ancient world. In the book of Revelation, then, the Roman Empire itself becomes a symbol of all those God-hating empires and governments and self-deifying leaders which follow in their wake. In other words, the Roman Empire is the fourth beast of Daniel's prophecy. And the beast who comes out of the sea is described by John and is empowered by the dragon. But Rome is also a picture to the saints in the subsequent ages of all those satanic kingdoms, which will raise again and again throughout the course of this age, bent upon waging war on the saints. But the question that we face, for which we must seek God's wisdom to answer correctly, is to identify the manifestation of the beast in our own age, as well as weigh the possibility of whether or not a final beast will eventually come at some point in the future and that will arise in the days immediately before Christ's return, a beast which will make the Roman Empire maybe even seem, and its, and its persecution, maybe even seem tame in its comparison. And that is a question which, barring knowledge of the future course of the world's events and even the date of our Lord's return, we can't fully answer. We just have to make sense of with what we are given. And that's okay. You know, if you read a lot on this book, what you see almost immediately 
is that otherwise solid believers come to different conclusions on the finer details of this book. Revelation does not predict future events with the precision we would like. But John does lay out the ways in which Satan works, and he reminds us of those weapons that we are to use against him, namely the law and the gospel. And so the law convicts us of our sin and shows us how we are to live pleasing to the Lord in light of what the world says is good, right? The world is often telling you things that are good, which God's law would tell you to, for, to forbid and to avoid. And which then also, of course, makes us to stand apart from the world. And the world who was under the influence and it was, who was in fact worshiping the beast, even if they're not aware of it. And the gospel is that declaration which sets the captives free from sin and death so that they may desire to worship God and the Christ. And the gospel is also the continuing means of strengthening, of strengthening the life of the believer as it reminds us of what Christ has done for us and it humbles us and it conforms us to Christ. And so let's just consider this description of the beast. The beast actually reflects the description of the dragon. Uh, Because remember, and the dragon is the one who's empowering it with strength. As the dragon has seven heads and ten horns, Revelation 12, 3, so also the beast is its mirror image with ten horns and seven heads, as 13, 1 tells us. And that's the main thing to see there, that this beast is like the dragon. It's like Satan. But the replication is not exact. The dragon has seven diadems on its seven heads, whereas the beast tends horns bear ten diadems. A diadem is just a crown or the jewel that goes on a crown, okay? If you think of like um, like a homecoming dance, the homecoming queen, it's like a little small thing that's on her head. That's kind of like a diadem is what that is. But again, the point is that the beast in its rage against the church is drawing strength from Satan, the dragon. And we know this is the case because we're meant to see the connection here to Daniel's vision. Daniel's vision, which maybe you remember Um, I know we went over Daniel in Sunday school a long while ago, but Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days who invests in the Son of Man with eternal dominion, which is Daniel 7, that vision began with seeing four beasts. (coughs) And those four beasts were coming up from the sea, and they symbolized the four successive Gentile kingdoms that would wield power over the people of God. This is Daniel 7, 3, 17, and 23. And so in Daniel's vision... Chaldea, which is kind of like the new Babylon, that nation that came after Babylon, they appeared as a lion with eagle's wings. And then the Medes and the Persians who conquered Chaldea, they were like a bear as raised up on one side. And then Alexander's Hellenistic regime followed after his death by its fourfold subdivision as a leopard with four wings and four heads. So that's seven, four through six. The fourth beast was not compared with any of its predatory animals in nature because it's far worse than all of its uh, predecessors in its destructive power. It was said to have iron teeth and ten horns, crushing and trampling its victims and devouring its victims, 7, 7 through 8 and 19 to 21. (coughs) The beast that John now sees here in Revelation 13 actually combines them all combines all of the the beasts that Daniel saw in his vision into one. 
um, having ten horns. The beast was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth like a lion's mouth. Revelation thirteen one through two. So, in one sense, this monster that is described in Revelation thirteen is Daniel's fourth beast, as is evident from the fact that both speak <coughs> arrogant boasts and blasphemies. And they both wage war against the saints. Daniel seven twenty one and Romans thirteen or Revelation seven thirteen seven. Rome was an expression of the beast that would threaten the churches of Asia Minor, and that John, who John initially wrote to, and then also throughout the Mediterranean world and, and the decades and generations after John received his visions, the Roman Empire lasted for a good amount of time. We stand how four hundred years. Yeah, and so they're about, you know, here they're at the height, almost 300 years in to, their, to the empire's power. But in another sense, through the monster, <coughs> excuse me, that John now sees is actually bigger than Rome. As the merging of imagery from all four Daniel, of Daniel's beasts shows us, the beast is given authority to act for 42 months, we read, which is 13.5. And we've seen that period of time before. 42 months is 1,260 days, or it's a three and a half years. And again, that's that symbolic time, that it's our period of time that's supposed to span the whole time of the church in between the two comings of Christ Jesus. And so this beast, who is clearly being pictured of Rome in the early first century, as John is writing, is also expanded beyond that to be engaging against the church throughout this whole age that we're living in. And during this period, the church will be persecuted and protected. It'll be witnessing invincibly and yet trampled underfoot, conquered but not yet destroyed. Therefore, this beast and its persecuting power would outlast the fall of Rome in the 5th century. And it continues to find various expressions, some more overt and potent than others, down to our very day. And again, that, in the terms of John, requires wisdom to see. And this is where many tend to go wrong, even. So what do many do here in chapter 13 with these two beasts that they see coming out of the ocean? They see them as one figurative future Antichrist figure. And that would be wrong on a couple of levels. I'm going to save most of my comments for the Antichrist, or the notion of Antichrist, until next week when we look at the second beast. But if this is just some future evil enemy of God that is being descriptive here, then how is this passage meaningful to the original audience? How would it help them to make sense of what's happening to them in the Roman Empire? Well, the New Testament portrait of the present and future is actually quite consistent. Wherever we turn, uh, the same thing's happening here. The dragon's violent hostility against Christ and his church is a constant that characterizes the whole era between Christ's resurrection and his return. <coughs> this beast is certainly opposed to Christ and his church. He receives worship even, we read in verse 4. The world praises the enemy of Christ in the church we read. Maybe they aren't even aware that the beast has been given power from Satan, but they worship it for its strength, we read. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it is what we read. The ways of this world are simply attractive to the lost, friends. And so we're being warned here. 
Do we find joy in the things that the world says is good and right? We are to live in the world, of course, but we're not to have fellowship with the world. James 4.4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, is war with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And just, again, think of that statue in New York or the culture, how it's expressed in how it's expressed in many um, modern records and, and celebrity and the, the debauchery that is just celebrated and normalized. There's worshiping going on here. But do we see it? And so this beast, which is a collective body, empowered by the dragon who is Satan, is certainly opposed to Christ and the pure worship of God. But it finds special significance, and we learn a lot about its methods and tactics from the first example of the beast, which is Nero's Rome. There's an interesting event in verse 3, actually, that in order to deceive the whole world, the beast now imitates the power of God, specifically the resurrection of Christ Jesus. In verse 3, we read that one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound had been healed, and the whole earth marveled and followed the beast. In other words... The beast is mocking the truth, just like they do in an unholy trinity as well. But this leads to the deception of the world. And so it makes sense to see the resurrection of the beast against the historical background of John's own age and the so-called Nero myth. The Roman emperor Nero was one of the most notorious and evil figures of the ancient world. Uh, At first, when he came to power, he was kind of indifferent to Christianity. He didn't really mind it. But later on, he became violently opposed to it. And he's probably the one who's responsible for putting to death Paul and Peter in Rome, along with countless other Christians, uh, martyrs as well. So that means that you would maybe know, you've said you've been reading Justin Martyr's book, right? I think it talks about that. So that means that John would be writing about events that have already taken place from his vantage point now. Because Nero died before this book was even written. Domitian was the cult emperor by the time of 90 AD when, uh, when this was being written. But Nero, he was a vain man. He was completely preoccupied with his own personal wealth and luxury. He bankrupted the, the imperial treasury. And then what he did to have money is he confiscated the land of the nobles that were around so that he could continue his spending. And what did he spend his money on? (laughs) Things to worship himself, but also women, food, parties. The types of things that celebrity culture celebrates today, in fact. He was also a violent man. He killed his pregnant wife, and she was pretty horrible herself even. But he killed her by kicking her in the stomach. And in order to continue his licentious uh, living, he took advantage of a horrible fire which for six days burned much of the city of Rome during the summer of A.D. 64. (coughs) Did he start this fire? Possibly, but we aren't sure. But in order to protect himself from criticism, what he did was he blamed the Christians for the fire. And many of those Christians then he subsequently had tortured by turning them into human torches. We get that name Roman candles from this. He would cover Christians in tar and then he put them on a pole and he put them in this, in this, along the street and then set them ablaze. And so Christians would die there under Nero's ins- insanity. But 
This man ended up committing suicide in AD 68 at only 30 years old. And rumors spread throughout the Roman Empire that Nero was still alive, that he had gone to hiding in some remote part of the empire. Kind of like Tupac, more modernly, if wow. you think about it. Well, it's, it's weird. It's weird that people do this type of thing with people who are not like necessarily good people. Jesus, you know, we understand his resurrection story. He promised it. But why do we do it with these people who are <coughs> not on the same level? <laughs> There's some sort of deception going on there is what I'm trying to help you to see here. That the, the beast does these kind of things to mimic and mock the true God. But back to Nero. Rumors spread that he would soon take revenge upon all those who spoke evil of him once they thought he was dead. There are even wild rumors that Nero would come back to life or that he had already been raised from the dead. And although he was hated in Rome because of the fire, Nero was admired throughout much of the empire, perhaps explaining why these rumors spread so rapidly. Uh, the Jews living in Rome compared Nero with the little horn of Daniel's prophecy and identified him as the Antichrist, an evil figure whom the Jews believed would arise in the days immediately before the appearance of the Messiah. So that tells you something, right? that these Jews didn't believe Jesus was, was the Messiah because Nero is 30 years after Jesus came and, and ascended even. And so a number of Christians followed suit, hence the connection often made between the beast and the Antichrist, which exists even to this day. I don't think that's correct. We'll talk about Antichrist next week. But certainly, Nero was opposed to the church. Certainly, he was empowered by Satan. And in any case, Nero Caesar figuratively or figures prominently prominently in John's teaching about the beast and his persecution of the church. Nero is the historical backdrop to which all subsequent self-deifying persecuted of the church must be measured. If we want to know what the beast will be like, we look to Caesar Nero and to the Roman Empire under his role. It's a sort of a, a type. And so when we see the corrupt leadership in Rome and the debauchery that was common in life and in entertainment there. And we see those same things happening today, similar things happening today. We're made to understand what we're up against. But what do we make of this whole resurrection with Nero? Because Nero didn't actually resurrect from the grave. What we do see in Rome is a succession of emperors that God sovereignly used to keep the kingdom alive. The historical record is that under the rule of the emperors of uh, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, Domitian, men who came after Nero, Rome reigned or regained the power and wealth she had before Nero brought the empire to a virtual collapse. And indeed, a case can be made that when one of the beast's seven heads was slain, Nero, a series of emperors arose who saw themselves as deities and restored to Rome her imperial majesty and power and strength. The fatal wound to the beast was apparently healed, as we read in chapter 13. But don't miss the bigger picture that Vern Poitrius points out. He says, The symbolism has broader application, and this that is this, the revival of a powerful movement or an institution after serious trouble seems to indicate to its followers that it's invincible. The empire seems to survive all threats, thereby showing that it was that it was eternal and attracting more worship than ever. And that's what we had happen in Rome. It's it's rank deception, and that same sort of mentality exists among powerful entities today as well. 
where they try to survive and prolong their existence and, and there's almost you know, a defeat of them and there's a war, but they are able to come back. Uh, this type of thing happens throughout the ages and this causes governments, especially religiously based governments, to propagate themselves up against God and to oppose his people. So like I had said earlier, I had planned to go through 5 through 10 tonight, but there's just too much that I want to say here about 5 through 10. And so I'm going to wrap it up for here tonight. But let me just offer one point of application as we close. You guys, we, everyone is going to worship something. Everyone worships. Everyone is created even to worship. But what will you worship? John Calvin is remembered as saying that the heart is full of deceit. It's a factory for idol making, a perpetual factory of idols. And this is the deceptive thing that we see in our text from tonight, is that Satan often mingles his lies with the truth so as to make false idols and false worship deceptive and attractive, even to those who are part of the church. And so what should we do? Well, one, we can pray for grace to recognize the the beasts that Satan empowers. You know their character and how they operate. You'll know better next week when we consider the rest of this chapter and the, and the parts I didn't have time for today. But you have started to see some of it already. But we need help from God to see the battle. We don't want to be like those who just exist as if it's not happening. Those people almost certainly end up worshiping the beast. And so we should pray to the Lord for understanding, to know about the spiritual battle that is existing around us. And in what ways is Satan attacking his kingdom? And then secondly... What's the best way to know the beast in his ways, even without having time to finish the sections that we were in chapter 13? It's to know who the beast is mimicking and mocking. It's to know the Lord at a better, in a better way. It's to trust in the Lamb, to recognize by grace that Jesus is Lord of all, that to trust in his perfect and complete work of redemption on behalf of sinners to seek to understand the depth of your sin and rebellion so that the love of God will be understood in its right and proper context. It's not what you have done to be saved, for there is nothing that you have done to be saved. You didn't do anything to earn it. But God gives this reconciliation and redemption generously through faith in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so get to know the great triune God. Know him in his word. Read it. Study it. Meditate upon it. You have, you are living in a period of time that is so blessed to have access to God's word. You have it in, on paper. You have it in digital. You can have it at your fingertips at any time. But we often, sadly, give ourselves over to the things that the beast employs to deceive the world, the celebrity entertainment, the, just the things that go on in the world that people end up worshiping. And yet here we have this word of God that reveals himself. Get to know this great triune God. Not because you have to. Of course, there is the have to aspect of it. But really, what I'm talking about is doing it out of a heart of you get to. Because God has been so gracious and so kind to you. And delight in the Savior that it reveals. Because when you are seeing Christ for who he is, in all of his holiness, in all of his kindness, in all of his mercy and his grace, 
the things that the beast is offering to you will be obvious since they're contrary to what is in Christ. And so look to Christ, friends. And we'll talk more about this next week. But let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for grace that we may be able to know the ways in which the beast is operating among us and around us. Some things seem to be blatantly obvious, Lord. Um, Others are more deceptive, we know. And so we know that we are often weak, God. So help us to be strengthened and to be filled with your word so that we may know truth (coughs) and not be deceived by lies and not be tricked by partial truths even as well. Please, Lord, uh, grow us and keep us safe. Help us to endure in Christ, for he is the one who holds us fast. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. All right, sorry about my uh, coughing so much and stuff. Hopefully I'll be better next week. Any uh, questions about Nero, the beast? Who's the beast? The Pope. <laughs> That's the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to him. That's the next beast. So I think we can make a case for that next week. Remember, the, the beast... The lamb's yeah. The satanically empowered, usually government, is the beast. You know... Think of Rome and Nero. Any questions? No? Okay.